So Jonah chapter one, starting in verse 17. Have you ever felt like drowning? Life was just that hard and that painful. You were sinking deep and you couldn't see the light at the surface anymore. And even more, maybe you weren't even sure you deserve to be rescued. Uh, Maybe you'd lost touch with God. Maybe you felt far from God. I've been there, and I know some of you have too. Well, Jesus was there as well. If you remember, when he hung on the cross, what did he cry out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's tempting at times like that to think that this whole God thing isn't working, that that faith has been proved false, that God is not good or in control anymore, at least in your life. But the scripture, of course, encourages us to think about this differently. We're we're told in scripture that God is good, right? And um, what what does Jesus teach about God, his father? He says, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or drink. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Aren't you much more valuable than they? You have a good, good father. He'll take care of you if you just trust him. And and I've tried to believe that, and I've tried to live that way, and to pattern my life after Jesus, who, who had great trust in his father's care for him. But as I've grown in my faith and as I've gone through many experiences and I've, as I've walked with others through many experiences, some of those experiences felt like drowning. And so here's my question. Jesus, you trusted your father and you tell us to trust him like that too, but your father let you get crucified. <laughs> and you told us to take up our crosses and follow you. You told us in this world we'd have trouble, that we, like you, would be persecuted. How is that a good father taking care of us? If God is good and cares for us, how can he let his beloved children sink deep, deep into dark waters sometimes? Well, it's actually an old, old question. God's people have been pondering it, wrestling with it for centuries, all the way back to the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures. In fact, we find it being explored right here in the book of Jonah. Remember the key question we ended with last Sunday as we finished up Jonah chapter one was, why is God chasing after Jonah, hurling ferocious storms at him, pushing Jonah to the brink? Is God an angry control freak? Or does God somehow have something good for Jonah that Jonah can't see, but that God doesn't want Jonah to miss? Well, here in chapter two, we begin to get the answer. And it doesn't come until Jonah is drowning, sinking deep, deep in the depths, figuratively and literally. And in that deep, dark place is where we discover something profound and important about God. So let's pick up the story where we left off last week. 
When the sailors last saw Jonah, they had just tossed him overboard into a raging sea. Jonah had suggested it. Remember, Jonah was running from God, dead set on not obeying the clear word God had given Jonah to go to Nineveh. No way, Jonah said. There's no way I'm going to the enemy. That's not my picture of how my life should go. That's not my vision of the good life that we all want. So he took off on a ship in the exact opposite direction. But God began pressing the issue with Jonah. God sent, the literal word is hurled, a great storm on the sea that imperiled the ship Jonah was on. And the sailors and Jonah quickly figured out it was because of Jonah, because Jonah was running from God, um, that this was happening. And Jonah, instead of repenting and telling God he would come back to God and go to Nineveh after all, Jonah told the sailors to toss him overboard. The sailors resisted. Obviously, killing a guy isn't a good solution. Even if it's his fault, you're in big trouble. But when the sailors realized they had no other option than to all go down with the ship, they relented and they tossed Jonah overboard. And as far as they knew, he was a goner. As far as Jonah knew, he was a goner. This is how his life would end, far, far from God, lost forever in a watery grave. Of the choices available to Jonah, it's what he chose for himself, maybe what he thought he deserved at that moment. Except, in that moment, something utterly unexpected and surprising happened. Before Jonah died, before he drowned in the ferocious sea, Jonah was suddenly clamped hard by something huge. I don't know if you, you heard the story that happened last July to Michael Packard, a fisherman off of Cape Cod, but he was diving for lobster when he recounts, all of a sudden, I just got hit by a freight train out of nowhere and just got boom, and then everything went dark. And then... I could sense I was moving, and I could feel the whale squeezing with the muscles in his mouth. And I thought to myself, there's no way I'm getting out of here. I'm done. I'm dead. Well, then the whale pretty quickly spit him out, lucky for him, which is why he lived to tell the tale after spending some time in the hospital for a dislocated knee and some pretty rough scrapes and bruises. Well, this must have been something like what it felt for Jonah, except that he got swallowed down, not spit out. But at some point in the dark, as time passed, it began to dawn on Jonah. He wasn't dead. He was very much alive. The narrator puts it this way, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Now, on a purely practical level, this, of course, raises all kinds of questions. What kind of fish is this, right? We all want to know. The Hebrew word translated fish, Jonah's written in Hebrew. It could be translated whale as well or sea monster. And, and lots of people have pursued which species have a big enough throat to swallow a person. And 
how long someone could live in its stomach without being digested. And when, where did the air come from for Jonah to breathe? It's safe to say, though, that, that the ch- children's book pictures are not helpful. Jonah's not sitting in a large, cavernous um, space lit and arched over with whale ribs. He's not with a few fish bones and seaweed bits at his feet, sitting there cross-legged praying to God. No, he's no doubt cramped tight, wet, uncomfortable, and in complete darkness. Now, I just want to acknowledge that there are some conservative interpreters of the Bible who believe in miracles and who take the authority of the Bible very seriously, but who think that the book of Jonah is probably a parable or a work of satire rather than straight history. Um, Not just because Jonah survives inside the fish, but for other reasons too, like the repenting cattle that we're going to get to in chapter 4. But we're not going to take time to get into all the arguments um, about this this morning and what genre the book of Jonah is. But let me just point out that if Jonah is history, then God did indeed prepare and send this great sea creature and somehow caused it at just the right time after it had swallowed enough air to um, swallow Jonah and keep Jonah alive for three days inside. And God could have done that. So where does that leave Jonah, though? Well, he's surprised. (laughs) He's no doubt not expecting a huge fish. He was expecting death. But just in the nick of time, this strange, surprising plot twist happened in his life. He's alive, squeezed into some dark living space. And he attributes this to God. A God so great that run away from God, though Jonah tried, God could send a ferocious storm out on the sea. And God could send a giant sea creature just at the right time to swallow Jonah and to somehow be equipped to keep Jonah alive inside. Now, remember, Jonah had wanted to die. He rather die than obey God and have to face God. And yet God spared Jonah's life. And I don't know what it was like for Jonah in those moments in the raging sea, in the cold, churning waters as he was sinking and drowning, but it was a harrowing enough experience that now that Jonah's not dead, he realizes not being dead is a better option. Maybe some of you have contemplated or attempted suicide, and maybe you could relate to this experience. Well, inside the belly of the fish, Jonah begins to have a change of heart. And inside the belly of the fish, Jonah does something he has not done yet in the whole story. Jonah prays. He finally talks to God and stops giving God the silent treatment. And it's as Jonah prays that we begin to get a glimpse of of how Jonah's heart is changing. Because Jonah's not railing against God for saving his life when he chose to be dead. No, Jonah's actually grateful now to be alive. And he's thankful to God for saving his life. Maybe Jonah realizes God didn't have to save his life. Jonah didn't deserve to be alive. 
But God's salvation came anyway as an unexpected gift. On the other hand, I don't want to give Jonah more credit than he's due. <laughs> Nowhere in this prayer in the ship's belly does Jonah repent or confess his sin or tell God he's sorry. He never admits any wrong. But at least he recognizes that God saved his life. And Jonah's happy, after all, to be alive. And that's progress for Jonah. And if you've ever been drowning yourself, if you've sunk to the depths, then you know that any glimmer that God might be good, after all, that God might have a good plan for you and notice you, that God might have something for your life in and beyond the belly of the whale, that's major progress in itself. Now, interestingly, the word for belly or stomach in Hebrew can also be translated womb, kind of like in English, a mom has a baby in her belly. Um, also interesting, Hebrew nouns often have both male and female endings. So, for example, the male word for fish or sea creature in Hebrews is God, not like God, but G-A-D, God. The female for a fish or sea creature is Gada. Now, get this. In chapter 1, verse 17, we read that Jonah is in the belly of the great fish, male, God, fish. But in the very next sentence, we read, then Jonah prayed from the belly or the womb of the Gada, female fish. I think the author is saying, yes, literally speaking, Jonah's in a sea creature's stomach. But I also want you to see that something is gestating in Jonah. Something is being brought to birth here in the belly of the Gada. That's what happens in times when we're in the depths. I think what we're supposed to learn here is that part of our journey to maturity and transformation and newness of life involves going through the depths. It's actually part of God's goodness, though it sure doesn't feel good at the time. Also, Jonah was in the fish for three days and three nights. And three days, or three days and three nights in the Bible, often refers to a period of testing or danger or nearness to death. It was believed in Bible times, for example, that the time it took a dead soul to reach its final abode in the underworld was three days. Three days is all the way to death's door, after which it's too late to ever come back. To be saved after three days is to be saved at the very last minute, just in the nick of time. There are a number of examples of this in the Bible, but the most obvious and relevant is what Jesus says. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Saved in the nick of time, after three days, raised back to life. Yes, Jesus died, but not permanently, not irreversibly. 
Likewise, Jonah came as close to death as he could without actually dying. And sometimes for each of us, that's what being in the depths is like. It feels like it lasts right to the very point of death. And so question again, how could a good God put us through this? How could it be that God the Father delighted in Jesus and trusted, or Jesus trusted in God, and God took such good care of Jesus, and yet God let Jesus go through these depths? And not just Jesus, I want you to notice a pattern in the Bible. Adam and Eve, they enjoy the good life in God's good garden of Eden. Then they choose their own way instead of God's, and they and their descendants are exiled away from God's presence. Before too long, humanity experiences a flood deep drowning waters but god saves humanity through noah and then god starts anew with abraham and brings abraham into a good land the promised land a flourishing life later abraham's family abraham's dysfunctional family leave the promised land and go to egypt they're enslaved there they suffer their baby boys are drowning in the deep waters of the nile but god saves them too and leads them through the waters of the Red Sea back into the promised land. But in the good land, God's people disobey again. And so they're exiled to the nations, to Babylon, which, by the way, the nations are often personified in Scripture as being like raging seas. And God's people are suffering again in exile. They're drowning there. But eventually God saves them yet again and leads them out through Jesus to newness of life. Do you see the pattern? When we turn from God, as Jonah did, as we all do in so many ways, looking for the good life on our own, apart from God, apart from God's way, we eventually wind up in deep, drowning in deep waters. Now, sometimes it's clearly our fault. Sometimes it's only partly our fault. And sometimes it's other people's faults. When we're in the deep, when we're drowning, the point isn't the specifics of who's most at fault in that particular case. The point is that we live in a broken, fallen world. And so a world where we've all turned from God And so life in this world involves going through deep places. It's part of life in this world, this broken world. And followers of Jesus, even those more or less faithful to God, are not exempt. But guess what? For those who belong to God, like with Jonah, God comes and saves us. Not always by protecting us from times of drowning, but rather sometimes God saves us through times of drowning. And at those times, it might feel like God doesn't care, like God's not even there for us. It might feel dark and dreadful. It might feel like we get all the way to the third day, to death itself. 
before, in the nick of time, God eventually saves us. Psalm 34, 19 says, The righteous person may have many troubles, but God, the Lord delivers the him from them all. And in the process of trouble and deliverance, we, like Jonah, are changed. Something new is, is given birth in us. A resurrection to new life takes place. That's what this prayer is about that Jonah prays in the belly of the great fish. Now, on its surface, Jonah's prayer, aren't you glad we got through the first verse? <laughs> the rest goes a lot more quickly. <laughs> on, Jonah's prayer is a weird and disturbing prayer on many levels. It's no wonder that every children's book you've ever read about Jonah leaves out this prayer. Let, let me just list for you some of the problems with Jonah's prayer. First of all, who prays like this, right? Especially after you've been eaten by a huge fish. This prayer is really elegant, poetic structure and style. It's fit more for a literary anthology than it is for being digested in a whale. Second, this poem is a psalm of thanksgiving. If you study the psalms, there are different types, there's different genres, each with its own style and format. And this poem is a perfect example of a psalm of thanksgiving. But Jonah prays this under the sea when he's been devoured as fish food. Thanksgiving? Seriously? This poem would make a lot better sense after Jonah was out of the fish, safely back on dry land, recovered, showered up, and able to reflect back and laugh about the whole thing. Why is this psalm of thanksgiving prayed in the belly of the fish? I mean, at the time Jonah prays this, does he even know he's going to get out of the fish alive? And then third, in this prayer, Jonah's still blaming God for his problems. Look at verse 3, for example, of chapter 2. You cast me into the deep. This word cast or hurled has come up before in the story twice. First, when God cast or hurled a great storm onto the sea, and then second, when Jonah told the sailors to cast him into the sea. How did Jonah get into the sea? It's not really God's fault. It's Jonah's choices. Jonah who wouldn't repent and who told the sailors to throw him overboard. And now Jonah's complaining that God cast Jonah into the sea. So Jonah doesn't repent. He doesn't confess his sins, and yet he blames God for his troubles. And then fourth... There's the self-righteous ending of this prayer. Verses 8 and 9. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of God's faithfulness. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving that which I have vowed I will pay. Now, I hope you see the irony here. Because this doesn't sound so bad all by itself, but in Jonah's mouth? Did you read chapter 1? We saw in chapter 1, Jonah ran from God. Jonah wouldn't listen to God. Jonah wouldn't pray. Jonah, wouldn't, or Jonah put everyone's life in danger. 
While meanwhile, the pagan sailors, those who worship vain idols, they at least prayed. They told Jonah to pray. They sought God. They tried to save Jonah. And in the end, they feared the Lord and made sacrifices and vows to God. Evidently, Jonah didn't notice any of that. He missed it all. Because here he is in this fish, self-righteously praying, looking down on those who worship vain idols, and he's talking about how he's going to sacrifice to God and make vows to God. The pagan sailors already did that. And there's no evidence in the story that Jonah ever does. This is all the wonderful literary artistry of the storyteller inviting us again to compare the pagan sailors with Jonah the prophet. And to notice the irony of what each claims to be and what each actually is. Going back to the coffee cans for those of you who were here last Sunday. Well, what do we make of Jonah's prayer? And why is it included in this story? Why doesn't the narrator just say, Jonah prayed inside the fish and God made the spit, fish spit Jonah out? Why actually give us this prayer? Well, I think the reason is that this prayer is here for us more than for Jonah. Whatever circumstances, um, or rather whatever criticisms we may have of Jonah about how sincere this prayer was, it's recorded here for us so that we can learn from it, so that we can pray after we've been drowning, as we begin to have glimmers of hope that God will rescue us. This prayer and many of the Psalms too, is how you pray when you have no words of your own. And I think it teaches us two things about how to pray when we're in the whale's belly. First, asking God to save us and to rescue us is not about whether we deserve it or not. Did Jonah deserve for God to rescue him? Nowhere in this prayer does Jonah claim he deserved it. Nowhere does he even confess his sins as a way of getting right with God in order to deserve it. No, Jonah just calls for help, period. God, help! And the Lord answers. I can tell you when I've been drowning, I have really felt um, sometimes condemned, like a spiritual failure. Like I don't have my act together and I don't deserve God's help. But that voice, do you know what that voice actually is? It's Satan's voice. You know what the name Satan means? It means accuser. Satan's is the voice that tries to kick us when we're already down. That's not God's voice. And it's not what we see in this prayer. Jonah simply cries out for help. And God, in God's grace, comes and rescues him. The second thing about this prayer is that it's, it's hopeful. It gives thanks for God's salvation before it's even fully happened. Jonah's still in the belly of the fish. He's, he's not back on dry ground. And I don't know about you, but, but giving thanks for being saved seems premature to me. But Jonah does already have something to be thankful for, right? God showed up. 
God heard his cry. God saved him from drowning. And as of this moment, Jonah is not dead like he thought he would be. And if God is that good and that gracious, then Jonah has hope for more better things to come. And this gives Jonah hope. And so this prayer prayed in dark places is like lighting a little candle. Maybe just a little one. But it's a reassurance that no matter how it seems, no matter how it feels, God's not actually absent. No matter how hard it is, it doesn't mean God has given up on us. No, God is still there and God will save us. Maybe not yet. We don't know when, but no doubt just in the nick of time. And so the prayer ends with a declaration of hope. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And then right as if on cue, God commands the fish and it vomits Jonah out onto dry ground. And that's the end of chapter two. And so we're looking at Jonah for what it can teach us about listening to God and God's voice, hearing God's voice. And in the first chapter, we saw Jonah refuse to listen to God. And as a result, Jonah got deafer and deafer to God the further he ran from God. Jonah saw God as a threat, as working against the good life that Jonah knew he wanted. And when you think God doesn't want what's good for you, or God is angry with you, God is against you, it's hard to hear God's voice. Because remember, probably the biggest blockage to hearing God's voice is that we don't want to hear it. That we're afraid of what we're going to hear. And I can tell you in my own life, I've realized this. Sometimes when I'm afraid to listen to God, it's because I think God's going to tell me something I don't want to hear. What if God asks me to do something hard or embarrassing or uncomfortable? As if God's up there going, good, he's finally listening. Let's tell him something that he'll really hate. If that's our picture of God, then we're not going to be very motivated to actually relax and listen. But in the opening line of today's passage in verse 17, Jonah discovers a very different God. Not an angry God, not a controlling God, not a God who's hunting him down to punish him or harm him or drown him, but a God who attentively wants to save him. A God who's prepared a special fish to save Jonah from the depths and to begin to change Jonah's heart. Because Jonah needs a new heart, like the rest of us. And yes, it's painful in the fish's belly. It's uncomfortable. It's dark. But it's also like being in a womb where something new is being given birth. Something good changing us inside, shaping us bit by bit into something good and beautiful. And like it or not, these painful times for all of us are part of the journey. Not only God's goodness, as we sang earlier, when the sun's shining down on me and the world's all as it should be, 
but also God's goodness on the road marked with suffering where there's pain in the offering. In deep places that feel like drowning to shape us, to change us, that too is God's good work. Okay, time for this week's listening exercise. We're um, doing this each week during this series. So um, if you're noting these, journaling these, um, time to get out your journal or the piece of paper in your Bible or your phone or whatever you're using. And I wanna invite you to get comfortable where you are and reflect silently. When you listen to God, what do you expect to hear? Silence? Certain messages you expect? Certain topics you expect God to bring up? If so, do these topics make you want to listen? Or do they make you hesitant to listen? What if God wants to say to you, or what God wants to say to you, what if it's quite different from what you expect? Something I've tried, or I found helpful that I invite you to try right now, it's to focus less on the act of trying to hear from God or, or to think what God might want to say, and to just focus instead on God. Don't try too hard. Just focus on God and on God's goodness. Focus on a good God who cares for you. Maybe imagine God looking down on Jonah in the deep. Jonah's flailing, drowning, very unhappy. Unhappy with God, unhappy with his life. He's running from God. But he finally asks God for help in desperation. And in God's goodness, in God's graciousness, God already has a big fish prepared and equipped to rescue and take in Jonah. God's attentive care. Focus on that. Can you think of a time God cared for you? Think back. Think of a time you experienced God's goodness. I want to give you a second just to think that time. Think of a time like that. Remember it. Imagine it again. Imagine being in that place where you experienced God's goodness, what it felt like, what was happening around you, how you felt. And now with your eyes on a good God who did that for you, who was that for you, take a minute and ask God, what would you like to say to me today? I'll give you a minute just to listen.
if you got nothing that's okay we we can't control this and some of us are new at this but if a word or phrase or thought or scripture or picture came to mind maybe you want to write it down you can reflect on it again later and if something meaningful did come to mind would you share it with someone today someone that you trust and just say hey i had this sense from god this morning 